right, well, Noel and I this week just celebrated our 21st anniversary, uh, and we couldn't beat our 20th anniversary trip, though, which took a whole lot of folks to help us pull off. We had the privilege of going to Italy last year to celebrate, and part of that trip was going to the Amalfi Coast. It's one of the picturesque parts of Italy, beautiful, but what was, it was an amazing place, but what was awful about it was getting there. And, uh, and it's not because I don't like planes or cars. It's because we had to drive on these roads to get there. And uh, I've driven in several countries, and I'm not typically a nervous driver, and I'm usually comfortable in aggressive driving situations. All that was fine. I had no problem with that. But I was terrified on this road. Uh, Noel can attest that I was wiping my hands every, every couple minutes just because it, and it, essentially around every corner was a game of chicken. Right, So as I'm driving there, I'm on the right side of the road, uh, cliff on the right side, cars, Italian drivers coming around the edge, and it's essentially a one-way street, uh, and you just got to figure out who's going to get the dominant part of the road, uh, which means it was a game of chicken between the Italian driver and the cliff on the right, right? And so, uh, and that, whatever is that on the right side is not much of a guardrail, I can assure you of that when you're driving there. It doesn't feel like it anyways. And so, it was, it, this... It was incredibly difficult to drive these roads to get there. It took a lot of work because it was windy and dangerous, and it was fraught with all these internal challenges I was facing. I was going there. Well, if that was hard and that was difficult for me, this road would be my worst nightmare. Uh, this is actually Highway or Route 227 in the eastern Negev Desert in Israel. And, uh, and what I want to use this as an analogy to help us kind of navigate where we are in Ecclesiastes as we've been going through this series. But this isn't a perfect analogy, but the, relating to life's pleasures and pursuits can be a lot like navigating a road like this. All right? So bear with me for a minute. So God gives us lots of gifts and pleasures in life, lots of pursuits from simple things like sight and taste to come more complex enjoyments of relationships and entertainment and work and, and, and wealth. In Ecclesiastes, all along what we've been learning is that the teacher is helping us to see all of the harsh realities that we face in our lives, right? These can be from the smallest of things that uh, we have little to no control over so many of the difficulties of life to the bigger things of uh, injustice that is pervasive throughout the most of the history of the world and oppression to uh, the reality that every one of us, aging and death, is stalking us and haunting us and it's coming after us, and we, and we can't hold it back. And, and in the midst of, he, he's wanted to confront us with the harsh realities for lots of reasons, uh, but one of the biggest things is it shows us that there's, in this life, we can't get anything worthwhile out of it that gives us a sense of lasting meaning and purpose because all of it's in flux. And that's part of what he's been going after here. Well, last week, we began to look at how is the teacher in Ecclesiastes helping us learn to navigate these difficult times. And he gave us this surprising insight about life. And it's that God gives us these small gifts in our life, tangible gifts to enjoy for the moment. And those gifts not only give us relief in the moment, but are a pathway to see more of who he is. And it was this surprising wisdom that the teacher gave us. And it's awesome, and it's great. But as you reflect on it, as you walked away, if you're anything like me, you're like, this is really difficult. It's really difficult to learn how to relate to life's pleasures, pursuits in such a way that they're a pathway to see God through gratitude and adoration. And so often we have this difficult, challenging relationship with life's pleasures and pursuits, much like driving on this road. And on one side, you have a cliff on your left side here, and that would be the cliff of avoidance, 
right? And we talked about this, that, that avoidance is not an option in the Christian life. We can, we can get this sense that Christianity tells us that, you know, uh, it's all about this austerity of life, austerity of life, and all these pleasures and pursuits are dangerous, and we've got to stay away from them, and it's just more spiritual if we avoid all these pursuits and pleasures. And Ecclesiastes and the whole Bible is saying, uh-uh, that's not true. That actually spurns the giver that gave you those gifts. It's not more spiritual. It's not more holy. It's quite the opposite. Those pursuits and pleasures are a pathway to know him. So we've got to avoid that one cliff, the cliff on the left, which is avoidance, which we talked about last week. We talked about enjoying these gifts. But there's another cliff. And on the right side of that road is the cliff of idolatry. And this is where these pleasures and these pursuits begin to eclipse the giver. And we begin to live off them instead of God. And so what happens is these pleasures and pursuits begin to, in our lives, fundamentally replace who God is and his role in our life. And so this is what we want to address today. And, and the big, big God really wants us uh, to be on this road of enjoying his gifts as a pathway to him in gratitude and adoration. And we think it ought to be an easy road, but it's a whiny road. And it's a difficult road because really our hearts and the struggles that we have. And so our big picture summary, what I hope we see this morning, what I'm going to pray that God would help us to see is that in a healthy relationship with life's pleasures and pursuits, we receive them as gifts and God remains central. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and uh, God, you are at work in our lives. You have brought each of us here for a purpose and a reason. And Father, I ask that you would do something that none of us have the power to do, which is to make your word come alive. You know our stories. You know the harsh realities we're struggling and dealing with. You know the cliffs that we tend to fall out on. And would you meet us here? Would you help us to see how good you are, how beautiful you are, and how much worthy you are to follow than life's pleasures and pursuits, but yet how good you are that you would give them to us as a gift to enjoy and to point us back to you. Meet us here. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to then look into this challenge of relating to life's pleasures and pursuits, and we're going to go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 2 because it begins to show us this, there's a difference in how we relate. We can relate to life's pleasures and pursuits, particularly when it comes to the cliff of idolatry. And where we're orienting ourselves, verse 11 is kind of a summary after the teacher said, listen, I'm going to go out and test everything there is out there that's worthwhile to pursue, and I'm going to go at it with everything that I have, and I've got more resources than you, more wisdom than you. And he got to the end of it, and he said, listen, if you're looking for something worthwhile, true profit in life's pleasures and pursuits, it's not going to deliver it for you. And then he begins to talk about work, particularly in verses 18 through 23. So let's look at it here. In verse 11, he says, when I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a chasing after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. That gain is a permanent sense of meaning and fulfillment and purpose. And he goes on in verse 18, I hated all my work that I'd labored at under the sun because I must leave it to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise or a fool, yet he will take over all my work that I've labored at skillfully under the sun. This too is futile. When he's saying futile there, he's saying it's just a, it's a, it's like a puff of smoke. There's something there. There's some meaning and purpose, but that's not lasting. I can't hold on to it. And so I began, in verse 20, I began to give myself over to despair concerning all my work that I had labored at under the sun. When there is a person whose work was done with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and he must give his portion to a person who has not worked for it, this too is futile and a great wrong. For what does a person get 
with all his work and all his efforts that he labors at under the sun. For all his days are filled with grief, and his occupation is sorrowful. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This, too, is futile. And so what's the, as he's summarizing his experience, what, what's the overall sense you get? That work, that wealth, the wisdom, that achievement, the pleasure, they just leave us in a deficit. And what he's getting at here is that when you look to the pursuits, life's pleasures and pursuits to be gained for you, to deliver a sense of ultimate meaning and purpose, and we've looked at this already in Ecclesiastes, but it's a summary here, it's just going to fail us. This is the cliff of idolatry. It doesn't give you what you hope it's going to give you. It's not a road in any sense that takes you anywhere meaningful, but it leaves you in this frustration. And we've covered this, that ultimately what these life pleasures and pursuits, they can't quench our thirst. That you and I were created for a thirst for the infinite, God himself. And so when we run to life's pleasures and pursuits to quench that thirst, it's just going to be a constant dead-end road for us. I mean, it's the idea of if you're thirsty and run to drink salt water. Yes, it's wet. Yes, it looks like water. Yes, in a moment it delivers some sense of I'm drinking something. But in the end, it leaves you hallucinating and robs you of the very water that your body needs. It won't quench your thirst. And so that, that's one side of life's pleasure and pursuits. It's really the cliff of idolatry. But then we get to verse 24 and 25, and it's a shock because the language is so different. And in verse 24 and 25, he says, there is nothing better for a person than to eat, drink, and enjoy his work. Is that not shockingly different than what he just said? And I've seen that even this is from God's hand. Because who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him? And so here, the very things he said were bankrupt, we're now being told to enjoy. So is he just delusional? What's going on here? Now, listen, Ecclesiastes is a difficult book to understand. And wisdom literature adds another layer to it. But it, note the, the repeated phrases that take place in the previous verses. It was gain, the word gain. It was the word under the sun. Our teacher went out in the world to try to find something apart from God. That's what under the sun meant that was worthwhile, that could deliver a sense of lasting and meaning and purpose. That was the word gain. And what he found when he sought those things from life's pressures and pursuits is they didn't deliver. But what he's talking about here next is shockingly different. There's a distinction here. God is now central in his enjoyment of the gifts of this world. Verse 25 tells us that our enjoyment has God as its center, who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him. The eating, the working, the enjoying are all because of him. And this theme is not a one-off theme. In Ecclesiastes, it's definitely not a one-off theme in the Bible. Eight key sections in the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes deal with enjoyment of life's pleasures and pursuits as gifts from God. And so we talked about this week, but it's kind of a recap, is that life's pleasures and pursuits can either be gifts that we enjoy as a pathway to God, or we can strive to find gain in them that will never come. And so as we look at this stark contrast, it's, it, we ask the question then, right? How do we discern then if one of life's pleasures and pursuits, if we're enjoying it rightly, if we're enjoying it as a gift from God, that's a pathway to him, or if we're looking to it for gain? Maybe another way to think about it is how do we receive with an open hand life's pleasures and pursuits, as from him. And what does that look like to strive instead to find gain in them? And that's what we want to answer for us. So let's, 
let's switch gears here and think about how do we discern how we relate to life's pleasures and pursuits. And early on in this series, and in when we did Proverbs in the fall, we established that wisdom in the Bible is God-centered. And we gave you this illustration of a solar system. And the idea of the solar system is the sun is at the center of the solar system because it has the weight and the size and the mass to keep everything in orbit. And when we talked about wisdom and being God-centered and our lives being centered on God, we talked about this, is that, is that God is the only one big enough to quench the thirst that we have. He's the only big enough to keep all the things in life in, in a proper orbit around us. This joyful awe of God has to be central. And so really the question is then, is that in life's pleasures and pursuits, what does it mean for God to be central in them? And the fact is, Ecclesiastes doesn't give us a lot of insight on what that looks like. And this is where the Bible is part of a bigger story. And so if in one particular part of the Bible you, you struggle to maybe understand fully the message, you look to other parts of the Bible to help you understand it. And so we're going to go to 1 Timothy 16 through, or 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 to get some instruction on this. And we're going to look at verse 17 here to start with. And he says this, Paul, the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, he says, Instruct those who are rich in this present age not to be arrogant, or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. So you can see the enjoyment, God providing those for our enjoyment, the connection all the way back to Ecclesiastes. But he says here, uh, tells them not to be arrogant. So what's he getting at there? That this arrogance, proud, or being self-important. I think what he's after here is that if you take God out of the center of your solar system, then life's pleasures and pursuits become about you. That's and he's, he's warning here the danger of that with wealth, but this is with any of God's pleasures and pursuits in this life. It's not just wealth. If you're familiar with the Old Testament and the story of God rescuing the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, and he was bringing them into a, a land of promise, a land that would have a be abundant with blessing and goodness. They were in the desert, and now they're being brought out into something rich and overflowing, and God brought them there because he wanted to enjoy it and set them up for their, their people for life. But he did give them a warning. And he told them not to be proud. And in Deuteronomy 8, which I would encourage you to go back and look at, this is how he describes pride for them in that moment. He said, the danger for you is that you would forget me when you came into the blessing. And that you would begin to want the pleasures of the land more than you'd want me. And then you would begin to think that you got there on your own. And you would forget that I'm not just the one that gave you those gifts, but I brought you there in order for you to flourish. So as I think about that, and I think about Timothy here and what he's telling Timothy, I, one question I, I, would, I would put before you on how do we discern if life's pleasures, pursuits are off and how we relate to them. And the first question I would have on your outline to be on your screen is, have we forgotten God in this pleasure or pursuit? Has it become all about us? So what would that look like? I want to walk you through just giving you some examples and maybe a progression even of what it looks like to forget God in life's pleasures and pursuits. I think one of the things that begins to happen is we become self-focused. So we can think, I am the one who built this business. I am the one who has kept this family together. I am the one who has achieved this or built this next nest egg. And what comes with that self-focus is this sense that I hope others notice this about me. Not only do I hope to notice, I expect them to give me the recognition that I deserve. And so then these pleasures and pursuits become about our self-consumption. We can think that I'm entitled to this recognition, or I'm entitled to this peaceful life, or I'm entitled to these possessions. 
and that entitlement, that self-consumption, and, and, and Timothy, Paul begins to hint at it here is that it prevents us from living in any kind of sacrificial way or any kind of way of generosity because the hand is not open receiving it. The hand is striving for it, and we're holding on to it. And if, and if there's a pride or an arrogance, we've forgotten God, we can't let others enjoy this gift with us as well. And so this pleasure pursuit then no longer becomes a pathway for us to God. We're chasing it for its own sake. It doesn't lead us to God, but it's all about getting us the more pleasure that that pursuit would bring. So we don't necessarily want more of Him, but we want more of what life's pleasure or pursuit can bring us. And inevitably, what that begins to happen in life, it's what I've seen happen in my life, is that when one of life's pleasures or pursuits becomes central, it pushes out other healthy pursuits, right? One of the clearest ways you see this in the idea of workaholism, right? We, we strive for achievement in the workplace for a myriad of different reasons, and it pushes out other healthy relationships. Who gets the worst of us? The family. We don't have time for other healthy relationships to, to know God and to read the Bible together because of the center place of work or fill in the blank with any other pursuit. And then in the end, if you're a follower of Jesus, God ends up becoming a means to an end. We want God to the degree that he serves our goal of gaining this pleasure or pursuit. We obey God hoping that he would bless our work or give us a raise or make our kids turn out good. Or ministry can easily become not something that's about God, but about our own achievement and praise. We forget God and the pleasure and the pursuit. And this is where it takes us. And so, even just thinking about that first question, so just this, when we strive or we're going after to find gain in life's pursuit or pleasures that they weren't designed to give us, we forget it's about God, and that's the cliff of idolatry. And really, this arrogance is counter to this whole idea that, that it's a gift from God, right? And it's counter to what the teacher said in 225, that who can eat and enjoy life apart from him. But we would receive life's pleasures and pursuits of a gift of God to enjoy. He remains central. That's the road, right? That we can receive work with gratitude, that we can see more of God in the gift of a good meal. The good meal doesn't have to be an end to itself, that we're not defined by our wealth or our achievements, and that these pleasures and pursuits of life, the road tells us that the pleasures and pursuits of life can actually take us to him not away from him. That's the picture here. So that's the first question I'd ask. The second one would come out of verse 17 as well, and it would be this. Do you look to the pleasure or pursuit as the missing piece in our life? Where do I get that from? Well, verse 17 says, the apostle Paul warns them not to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth. And so this idea of hope, I think what he's getting at here is that these pleasures and pursuits, it, Wealth, work, wisdom, entertainment here, it's wealth particularly, but this can be anything. It's what we look to to rescue us from the difficult things of life. So in Ecclesiastes terms, it's the harsh realities of life, that we want these things to rescue us and give us a sense of meaning and purpose and fulfillment that they were never designed to give. And so, again, let's draw this out. So when we look to something as our hope to save us, we can think of that as the missing piece in life. And this is what I mean by that, is that if I only had fill in the blank, then life would be a lot better. It's the missing piece. 
It's the thing that always eludes us, that if we get it, it will give us something that nothing else in life can give us. So we can think things like, if I only had a better retirement set aside, then I would feel okay about the future. If I only had this, this special, significant relationship secured, man, then I'd finally would be, have meaning and purpose. If I could just get this promotion, then I would be set. If I could just have a bit more wisdom in parenting, then I would be good. You just fill in the blank. And it, it ever increases out there, right? That's the uncertainty of it. It's inherently unstable. So you get the if I only thing and another one comes on the radar. That's, that's just because it, it, it's not the missing piece. It won't never deliver what we want it to. Another way to think about this is when we look to something as our hope to rescue us, we can easily compare our situation with others. So comparison comes with this, that if I think something's my missing piece, it's inherently unstable, I'm always going to feel like someone's got more than me in it. And so we're constantly comparing. And so we battle with thoughts like, are they more learned and wise than me? Are their kids more behaved and accomplished than mine? Where are they at in their company? Do they have better vacations than I do? Do they have a nicer home and cars and clothes than I do? The, we, think, we don't tell people these thoughts, but we think these thoughts when we're going off that cliff of idolatry because we're looking for it to be our missing piece and it can't deliver that. It's inherently unstable, so we're comparing all around us. But another thing that happens here when we look at it as our missing piece, if it gets blocked or threatened, what happens? We're filled with worry and anger. We can't handle it. There's no such thing as contentment, right? And so what does this look like when we don't get noticed at work for our accomplishment? We get bitter. A person doesn't reciprocate our feelings. We're angry or depressed. The raise doesn't come. We're in despair. Our vacation isn't enjoyed by everyone else like we wanted them to, and so we harbor resentment. Our kids or our roommates interrupt our me time, and we're frustrated and grumpy. And so the... the when we strive for pleasures and pursuits to be gained for us, we think they're the missing piece. That's the cliff of idolatry. But when we were willing to open our hand and just receive them, this pleasure and pursuit as what it is, a gift and only a gift, then something different happens, right? We can actually look to our family and enjoy them without thinking they define us and give us a sense of worth. We can receive work with gratitude, and we don't try to make it quench our thirst. We can receive a vacation with gratitude, but we don't have to hold on to it and think that it's got to deliver a sense of satisfaction a week later. We can receive achievements or wealth with gratitude, but then we can be content when we don't get them or they're blocked because they're not the missing piece. They're just a gift to be enjoyed and point us back to the giver. So those are two quite practical questions that come out of that First Timothy passage. And so how do we handle then this challenging reload of relating to life's pleasures and pursuits? Well, as we think about where we go from here and just take with that, that picture of that road, we have kind of two ways we can go. And on one sense, we can, we can try to avoid. We can look at that, we can hear it, we can even hear the warning in Deuteronomy 8, the warning here in First Timothy and say, you know what, there's just too much danger with life's pleasures and pursuits. I'm just going to avoid them. That's a cliff. That's not a viable option in this life. That is not Christianity. That is not anything honoring to God. In a matter of fact, you and I, our hearts are our idol factories. 
And so you know what will happen when we make avoidance the goal? Avoidance becomes an idol. And our life is defined by avoidance. And we compare everybody else based on do they avoid the things that we do. And it becomes our security and our hope that it was never meant to give. And so avoidance is not an option. But here's the reality. Striving to make them something they're not is not an option either. That's a cliff as well. And so as you look at the road, the cliffs aren't options for us. We can continue down the path of striving to find, uh, give this, make this life pleasure, pursue something that will quench our thirst, but it will never deliver. We can try to avoid, but that's a cliff as well. God wants us on this road. And so what does it look like to turn towards this road? And think about it this way. If our, our options on both sides are the cliffs, God's in the center and he's wooing us to follow him. And I want you to think about who God is in that moment. He is the one that's big enough to quench our thirst. He is the one who's big enough to make all things right. And here's the thing God knows about you and I, that we struggle. We tend to struggle with the road and we go off the cliff all the time. And so you know what God says? This is his goodness. I'm not here for people who perfectly drive down the center of the road. I'm here to offer forgiveness to the people who constantly struggle with how to relate to life's pleasures and pursuits. And so I'm not just a God who's going to shame you when you fall off the cliff. I'm going to be a God who goes down and picks you up and forgives you and brings you back to the road. And the God that promises you that fully and forever, I will actually quench your thirst. It may not be here, but it will be when I return. And on that road now, I will continue to give you gifts. Despite your struggle to avoid and despite your struggle to make those gifts idolatrous, I will continue to give them to you because I delight in your enjoyment of them. And I'm willing you to see that those gifts are to point to me and to bring you back to me, the ultimate gift. That's the God who's wooing us down this road. And so I want to give you two practical thoughts, what it looks like for us to navigate this road. The first one comes from 1 Timothy 6, 18. It's on your outline. It'll be on the screen. Is let us cultivate generosity as a tool to help us engage with life's pleasures and pursuits in a healthy way. So he mentioned this in, in, uh, in verse 18. And the interesting thing about generosity, generosity is something that can actually reveal that God is not central because this missing piece is scarce and I've got to hold on to it. But it can also be the one thing that pushes us to faith, to trust him and woo our hearts back on to the right relationship with life pleasures and pursuits. And what I want to give you is just this, again, this picture of a open hand right? If we're striving to hold on to something because we think it's going to give us gain, it's impossible for us to give this to others. But if we would fight for generosity and open our hand, just for wealth, for instance, that we can enjoy the gift of wealth, but then we're also able to share it with others, that protects us from treating it, both avoiding it and falling off the cliff of idolatry. Because here's the reality, you and I can't be generous on our own. The only way that's cultivated in our heart is if we go back to the one who is the, has the greatest generosity of all, God himself. And this wrestle of faith to be generous actually enables us to relate to life's pleasures and pursuits in a healthy way. And so that would be my first practical thing for you. The second one would be this, is that let us cultivate a joy in the greatest of gifts, God himself. And I want to give you an analogy as we close. And if you don't like meat, this is not going to be helpful for you, but uh, you can imagine, put whatever else you like in the middle of that. You always will, let me, let me phrase it this way, you won't prefer 
a rubbery, overcooked old piece of meat if you have tasted a perfect filet from a high-end steak restaurant. You just won't. Once you get a taste of what a steak is supposed to be like, you just won't go back to the old poor piece of meat. And what, what, the point is this, is that you and I will constantly struggle to look to life's pleasures and pursuits to quench the deepest longings of our heart until we cultivate the taste for the one thing that will quench those desires. You get what I'm saying? And ultimately, if we want to relate rightly to life's pleasures and pursuits, we've got to taste the one who gave us those pursuits. We've got to taste the one who truly is good. And here's the beautiful part about it. Some of us, uh, we, we may not get to go to a high-end steak run very often, so it's only for those that have the money to do so. But the fact is, God is saying, I am a free giver of this taste to all. Come to me and enjoy what you were meant to enjoy. And then the gifts will only be accentuate that relationship with me. And so as we taste the greatest of joys, we won't strive for the lessers of joys of life's pursuits and pleasures and try to make them something they can't be. But instead, we can receive them as a gift to point us back to him, and he will be central in them. Let's pray. Father, one of the most difficult things about standing up and talking about these things from Ecclesiastes is the reality that I don't have this figured out. And I walked in today with the same struggles of every person in this room. I love life's pleasures and pursuits too much. And so often I, they're not gifts I've received that point me back to you, but they're things I hoard because I think they're the missing piece. And I can forget you in them. And really the only reason why any of us can come before you today is because you offer us forgiveness for that very struggle each and every day. And you offer us a pathway back to you through your son. And so, Father, what I pray is if there's those in the room that have never tasted the greater of the gifts of this world, your son, I pray that they would taste him for the first time. That they would see that life's pleasures and pursuits are uh, they're not to be avoided, but they, nor can they be looked to as the missing piece in our life. That if we are to see them rightly, we see you as central. And so for those of us who have tasted and have seen, would you teach us to relate rightly with these gifts? Let us be a church that receives what you've given us with joy and adoration and are willing in turn to hand it out and to be generous and sacrificial with it, with the city around us. It's your name we pray. Amen. Amen.